bringing faith to you and your inbox. Our daily newsletter, America Today, keeps you informed and inspired with breaking news, award-winning analysis, and spiritual reflections. Subscribe to our newsletter for free at americamag.org newsletters. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Good to be with you, Zach. How you doing? I am doing well. Um, what what state excited. are you in? I feel like we've been moving around a lot recently <laughs> and missing each other. <laughs> I know. So um, after uh, spending a little bit of time in Ohio, I am back in Brooklyn. Uh, okay. So. And after spending a little bit of time in Brooklyn, I am back in Virginia. So Yes. So <laughs> both of us have spent a lot of time in cars, but uh, not near each other. Anyway, yes. I'm excited about what we've got on tap this week. Yes. we. What are we drinking? So it's summertime. Um, it's warm. Um, and I thought we could celebrate that with uh, some Aperol Spritz. Um, yes, I made you say that because I always accidentally call it either like aerosol or Aperol, and I've never actually known how to say it correctly. <laughs> you uh, definitely do not want to use anything that comes out of an aerosol can. Yeah, in your probably not. <laughs> but uh, what is inside of it is Aperol, which is this uh, sort of bitter liqueur that is popular in Italy um, with a little Prosecco and a splash of uh, club soda or in, in a, in a, like an orange garnish. Um, but it's very popular as an after work drink in places like Rome. Um, this is not quite after work, but we're getting there. So yeah. <laughs> it feels appropriate. So yep. cheers. Cheers. And who are we talking to this week? We are talking to Dr. Sarah Qureshi, who is a practicing family medicine doctor in Washington, D.C., and she also teaches a course at Georgetown University on racial bias in the healthcare system. So we talked to Dr. Qureshi about the course that she teaches and also what's the best way to try and frame some of these big conversations about, you know, systemic racism that we're having right now in the various fields that we're all working in. Yeah, I found it really helpful to get kind of specific about it because like you said yeah it's a really big term that encompasses a lot and it's kind of hard to pin down and you know how does it operate in day-to-day life um so she's really helpful talking about how that operates as when you know when people of color interact with the healthcare system or if a person of color tries to become a doctor what does how does racism um change their experience of that um and fun fact her husband wajahat ali was on the show back in 2018 uh to talk about being a muslim american in the age of trump so you can go back and listen to episode 60 um so stick around for that interview but first we have signs of the times the part of our show where we sift through the catholic news of the week so you don't have to what's our first story zach so it is 6-3 ruling this week the Supreme Court ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects LGBT workers from employment discrimination. Right. So Title VII prevents employment discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. And so the question be- before the Supreme Court was whether sex also applied to sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and in his majority opinion for the court, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who is a Trump appointee, wrote that 
quote, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. And in his dissent, Justice Alito wrote that the question in these cases is not whether discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity should be outlawed. The question is whether Congress did that in 1964. And he said that it, quote, indisputably did not. And this is a story that involves the Catholic Church on one level and in another sense doesn't involve it yet. Right. So the decision was applauded by LGBT advocates, including Catholic groups like New Ways Ministries, who see this as, you know, a decision that will force employers to uphold that phrase in the Catholic Church's catechism to avoid any unjust discrimination against gay people. Um, so, you know, they see if if you are fired from your work, you know, as a teacher, just because you've married a person of the same sex, they see that as constituting unjust discrimination. Um, but the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops did not agree with that assessment. Right. Archbishop Jose Gomez released a statement saying that he is, quote, deeply concerned that the ruling has effectively redefined the legal meaning of sex in our nation's civil rights law. Archbishop Gomez is trying to say that protecting our neighbors from unjust discrimination does not require redefining human nature. So what does this mean for Catholic institutions? It's a lot of that's a question a lot of people are asking right now um, amid uh, both the celebration among some and criticism among others. Um, what it We've talked to colleagues who have done more reporting on this than we have, and and they say it's unlikely that this will result in um, Catholic institutions uh, having to apply the same uh, protections against employment discrimination as other groups. Right. We've talked about on the show before this thing that's called the ministerial exception. Um, Basically, Catholic or any religious institution has the right to determine who is a minister and what qualities they should have in order to pass on the, the, the religious tradition that they represent. Um, this has come up a number of times um, in the American church as uh, LGBT teachers, music ministers, uh, et cetera, have been fired or had their contracts not renewed after a same-sex relationship was made public. Right. And this decision really isn't going to change the status quo too much yet. Um, In his opinion, Justice Gorsuch said that we should expect future cases in which we kind of litigate the boundaries of religious liberty for churches on the one hand and protections against employment discrimination on the other. So it's definitely a story we're going to be following in the future. What's our next story, Ashley? So on June 10th, President Trump tweeted that he was honored by a letter he received from Archbishop Carlo Vigano, in which the former Vatican Nuncio to the United States praised Trump for his defense of the right to life and warned the president of various conspiracies involving the quote-unquote deep state and quote-unquote deep church. If the name Vigano sounds familiar, it might be because he's the same guy who called for the resignation of Pope Francis back in 2018 and more recently issued a manifesto that claims the coronavirus pandemic is part of an attempt to create, quote, a world government beyond all control. Yeah. And if that sounds kind of conspiratorial and maybe fringy, um, it... that's a fair assessment. And it's something we wrestle with as Catholic journalists when we're looking at stories like this, like how much attention should we give to this guy and his manifesto? Um, And 
is that doing, are we shedding light on something or are we just giving a bigger platform to ideas that are maybe harmful uh, or hate-filled? Right. And I think this, I mean, the secular world wrestles with this too, right? This question of whether you're supposed to, you know, write about these things and debunk them. But by doing so, the counter argument goes that you just give them a platform and you, more people hear about them anyway. But on the other hand, if the president and his 82 million Twitter followers are reading about it, sort of platform questions go out the window, right? He's already been given like the largest platform, one of the largest platforms possible. Right. And what kind of like brought this home for me on like a very personal level (laughs) this weekend, my, I, I, got back from Brooklyn and I was talking to my mom who had just gone to a public mass for the first time. And she was like, you know what? The church opened and I almost didn't want to go because I was just so mad about this vegano thing. And like, I don't know what the, like what the church is doing and I don't know what to think about it. And I was like, Oh, if my mom, who's not exactly like plugged into Catholic Twitter is thinking about this, this has, you know, reached a level where it's trickling down to people in the pews. And, you know, as journalists uh, i feel like we have some level of responsibility to like give this letter context right and that's something we've tried to do uh on our other platforms here at america explaining sort of outlining what the timeline of archbishop vigano's return to the spotlight has been since 2018 uh when uh this first accusation when vigano first accused pope francis of covering up clerical sex abuse uh, back in 2018, uh, Francis said that he wasn't going to respond directly to uh, Archbishop Vigano's charges, and he told journalists like us to investigate these claims for themselves and make their own judgment. Right, and I remember thinking at the time, like that was kind of like a cop out on Pope Francis's part because it was just like such an explosive allegation that you know, like Pope Francis was covering up sexual abuse and mishandling the allegations against Cardinal McCarrick, which like, you know, after everything we've been through as a church, like allegations of cover up are not that, you know, wild to consider that they're, they're actually quite believable. So to have the Pope just say like, I'm not going to respond to this seemed kind of, I don't know, like I felt myself wanting more, but I feel like the past two years have kind of uh, showed the wisdom of Pope Francis's approach of not engaging with uh, Archbishop Vigano. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's right. In, in a certain sense, Francis is saying, let the facts speak for themselves and journalists, you should do your job and go uncover those facts wherever they lead. And he kind of left it at that. Um, we should say that we're still waiting on, we are still waiting on a lot of those facts. And there is a report coming from the Vatican on uh, Archbishop, uh, former Archbishop Theodore McCarrick and the culture of uh, cover-up that was around that. Um, but I think by not Francis not directly responding to it or relying on us to try and navigate when we're supposed to chime in or not, people like Archbishop Vigano will oftentimes just plug into already wildly popular outlets uh, that are considered fringe um, and not even Catholic in any sense of the word um, and get their message out to people like your mom who are going to hear that and just be super confused. Yeah, and it, it I think the most destructive part of it is that our country is already so divided that, you know, Archbishop Vigano can kind of plug into that and play into uh, divisions that are already there in a way that like, so if you were before this, you were already supportive of Trump and skeptical of Pope Francis, you're just like going to take what Vigano says at as face value. And if you don't, you're going to ignore it. And so it just deepens those divisions that are really destructive to our country and church. 
And we shouldn't pretend that this is happening in the political realm without any context, right? This is coming in the middle of a number of uh, sort of overtures that President Trump is clearly trying to make to white Catholics in particular to gain their support for his election this year. You know, he went to visit the St. John Paul II shrine in Washington, D.C., where he was maybe going to sign an executive order on religious liberty. Um, These things are clearly calculated efforts to be uh, media stunts. And so I guess where I'd end with this is like, if if your friends or family are coming to you and asking like, what's the deal with this vegan guy? Like, what? how would you respond? And I would say one thing is kind of like, Use your discernment. Like, look at what Archbishop Vigano is saying and and see what that sounds like, um, the evil spirit or the good spirit. And I think it's, you know, he's 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 playing into divisions. Um, and I I don't see that as something that is is of God and that builds up the church. I I see it as something that is that is tearing apart a country and a church that is already wrought with these divisions. So that's one thing. And another thing is you know, get to know the context. There are other media outlets that are not going for clickbaits or um, playing into these divisions that you can pay attention to. Right. And I think it's incumbent, especially upon, you know, Catholics who are people who listen to a podcast like this to kind of do the work of figuring out what are, you know, what are credible Catholic journalists that are doing the work of explaining these things, right? America is one of them, but if you're curious, you know, ask in our Facebook group, a number of people will be happy to point you to some of these places, but, you know, seek those out, you know, support them if you can, but, you know, spread those around instead of the, as you said, Ashley, clickbait meme generating places that exist to really just sow division in the church. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about this, um, especially about the Vatican's reaction to um, this latest, uh, missive from Archbishop Vigano, you can listen to Inside the Vatican, where our colleagues Colleen Dully and Jerry O'Connell will be uh, giving the view from the Vatican. And we will link to that and the articles at americamagazine.org in our show notes. Joining us from Alexandria, Virginia, is Dr. Sarah Qureshi. She is a doctor practicing family medicine in Washington, D.C., and teaches a course at Georgetown University on racial bias in healthcare. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. I imagine you are busy as both a professor and a practicing doctor, so we appreciate you coming on. Um, so we want to, in this conversation, talk about some like big weighty issues um, about you know the moment we're in with the uh, protests against pr- police brutality and the coronavirus pandemic, um, but we wanted to start with just some some terms to get us on the same page. So when we talk about systemic racism, what what does that mean? Yeah, so th- thanks so much for starting with that, Ashley, because I think that's really important to define. Um, so institutionalized or systemic racism is basically structures that are in place that disadvantage a certain group based on their race. So it's not just like an individual feeling a certain way. It's basically refers to policies and structures and the bigger picture of um, 
our environment and our landscape and um, government that is racist in its um, origins. And that leads to other forms of racism, but it's, it's, it's those that are kind of like embedded in our society. Yeah. Cause I, one of the things that I have tried and struggled at times to like explain to some of my family and friends is that, you know, everybody seems this moment seems different because universally people who saw the George Floyd murder condemned it quickly and could call it racist even. But then when you try to move the conversation sort of to the next level um, to address some sort of like, oh no, this is a structure or a system. I think sometimes like those are like really tough terms to like get across um, to even like well-meaning people sometimes. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you're right. I think that, I mean, something happened in our country, you know, in the past few weeks, which is It's sad that it took us to get to this point, but I'm glad that now we're talking about it, although it's horrible that all these lives have been lost. But even with that, like you said, I think that so many people will condemn his murder, um, but then say, oh, it's just a few bad apples in the police system, right? That's some of the terms I've heard. Somebody who says that does not understand or appreciate what systemic racism is, that it's not just a few bad apples, that it's structures that have been passed down, it's implicit biases, it's um, what, what we've, what, what's historically happened in our country that has led to that cop treating George Floyd and murdering him so brutally the way he did it with a camera in his face. So how, moving from the law enforcement system, let's I want to shift to the system you're working in. So within healthcare, how does how does systemic racism operate? So, I mean, with healthcare, so it it operates the reason I, I hesitate, I was trying to think about how do I answer that because in a sound bite, right? <laughs> yeah, in a, a sound bite. <laughs> it's a big question and it's an important one. And it's one that we have not talked about enough. Um, I was actually um, for our medical students, we we had a session just to bring medical students together to talk about this moment in time and, and what's going on in our country and how our students are affected. And I actually use this analogy. Um in medicine, we always talk about getting to the root of the problem. And so I, I, I use this analogy by saying that I see that America, our country, is the patient. And our patient has had this trauma and toxicity and dysfunction at its core since, it, since it, even before its inception. And these issues have led to a really sick patient who keeps getting infections, whose organs keeps failing, who keeps bleeding. And the physicians have kind of been giving it medications, putting a Band-Aid or a tourniquet on it to stop the bleeding, but they haven't really addressed the core issues that are causing all of these problems. And it's continued to live. And then there was just this tipping point where this bad infection kind of ravaged the whole body. And then there's also more documentation of maybe what the underlying conditions might be. And so the phys- physicians finally realized that until they address this underlying cause, we're not really healing our patient. And so that's where I think we're at with, in terms of healthcare and racism in America, our country is bleeding out from the murder, marginalization, or oppression of Black people. And um, I think that we can't, we can no longer ignore that underlying condition of systemic anti-Black racism perpetuated by a culture of white supremacy. And what I mean by ignore is for, for years we teach, you know, in most med schools, you'll hear this term social determinants of health. And we'll talk about education and employment and food access and socioeconomic status and how that all affects health outcomes. And you have disproportionate health outcomes for certain communities, such as Black communities or Native Americans. But really what's underlying all of those things 
is systematic racism. It, it touches and affects every single one of those things that I mentioned. So it's, it's related to health directly, but also indirectly through all these bigger picture um, things, including the law and including mass incarceration and p- police brutality, because that affects health outcomes also. So just to help people, like, what does that look like on like an individual basis? So when a person of color is interacting with the healthcare system, what are the biases they're facing? What are the obstacles they're facing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think um, one example, so just in terms of the healthcare access, one example could be even looking at at COVID and looking at the pandemic that we're in right now and um, why our Black communities are disproportionately dying from COVID. I mean, in in D.C. alone, um, Black individuals make up about 44% of the population, but they make up about 75% of those who are dying from COVID in D.C. And so how that translates, w- one small example, and this, this study hasn't been peer-reviewed, but it, um, it's basically saying that Black individuals especially, and other people of color, minority populations experience implicit bias from healthcare workers. Um, and one example was Black patients with cough and fever were six times less likely to get tested for COVID than a white person or a white patient with the same symptoms. I mean, that's, that's, a, Which that's is crazy. just one little example. It's a huge disparity. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, your reaction is like, how how is that possible, right? Right. No, and I guess... How is that? Yeah, that's my, exactly my question. How is that possible? But, you know, it's not just with COVID. I mean, there, this is documented in research time and time and time again that there, I- implicit bias is kind of like, it's not outright racism. It's just basically notions that, that we have or biases that we have that might be subconscious, right? And so when you put somebody in a stressed environment like a police officer or like a physician and they're stressed and then they have to make quick quick calls, quick judgments, that's where implicit biases can become really dangerous. And this is one example. And, you know, and I say these biases, I, I, I've seen them. I've seen them in, when I was in my residency. I see them in clinics. I, I, I hear the way doctors might talk about Black patients. Or um, I, when I was doing my residency at UCSF, where we were mainly at a county hospital at San Francisco General Hospital, and uh, they were finding that when patients would come in with chest pain, they were mainly doing the urine drug screens on black patients, but not on white patients um, to look for cocaine use as a cause of the chest pain. And they found that 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 was inappropriate care. And they ended up just testing anybody who came in with chest pain um, with a urine tox screen because it was, there were these biases they were making about black pain black patients and being drug users. And another example is um, there's been some really clear studies that show that most doctors think that black patients have higher pain tolerance than other individuals. And so they're less likely to prescribe pain medications to black patients than they are to white patients. I I mean, I could could give you so many examples, um, but but what this all stems from, again, is systematic racism, because if you look back at the history of our country and you look at slavery and you look through the medical textbooks and the medical experimentation on black bodies, you see, you read the perceptions. They thought, they thought that blacks were genetically different, that blacks were less intelligent, that blacks had thicker skin, that they were predisposed to violence. And this, um, that race was seen as a biological construct rather than really what it is. It's a sociological construct. And you can just see how that's perpetuated down throughout the healthcare system in the textbooks that I learned from. And even the way our professors or faculty unknowingly are teaching our students today. 
Yeah, even to go to back to the coronavirus, like even when I've heard stats that sort of get into the racial disparities, it's often sort of quickly explained with, oh, well, that's because there are these comorbidities that are present in these communities, as if that is a biological explanation for why um, the coronavirus is attacking them more. And of course, it is an explanation, but there's to get to the systemic level, you're saying that we need to there are social reasons for these comorbidities even. Absolutely. No, thank you for bringing that up because that's, I mean, we're even doing research on that at the medical school right now. Some students had come to me a few years ago and said, we keep hearing our professors just say African Americans are more at risk of hypertension or diabetes, but without explaining why. And it's almost implied that it's a biological reason, right? If you don't give any context to it. And we've been, we've, I've, been doing reading on the literature around that, but you are absolutely right. It's kind of just mentioned just that they, they have higher risk. And I think most physicians graduate from med school with that just stuck in their mind without thinking about really, it really has nothing to do with genetics that their risk is high, higher. It's all the socioeconomic conditions, the healthcare context, um, in terms of poor access to care, it's the food deserts, it's the uh, decreased access to healthy food. It's it's all of, it's not being able to trust the medical establishment because of the experimentation on, um, you know, their ancestors and, you know, that's been passed down. Um, there, there's so many things that contribute to those disparities. And so you're right with COVID, we know this, that 90% of COVID patients who are hospitalized had one underlying condition. And we know that 50% have obesity or hypertension. And so you're right there. They say, well, it's because these communities have hypertension and diabetes and obesity, but you have to look even further back to say what led to those, that these communities being at risk for those health conditions. One of the things that I worry about is typically, even when we understand that there is a problem in communities of color is that the only solution we have is to throw police or law enforcement at the issue. I mean, even you saw like in New York, when we were trying to enforce social distancing, who got who was held accountable for that were communities of color disproportionately. And so I'm sort of like fearful for a world or a response where when we're even when we know the data that it's affecting communities of color, that we're not we're going to provide them with the wrong solutions. And instead, like it'll be locked down for communities of color and then the rest of us can go back to life as it was. No, that's 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 a, a a great point. That's so unfortunate, and you're absolutely right. I mean, one example is the disproportionate policing. Um, there was one study that looked at the arrests from March to May in Brooklyn, and there are 40 arrests made for social distancing violations, and 35 were Black individuals, four were Latino, and one was white. And um, more than 80% of the summons that were like for social distancing in New York City were were black and latino. So that that's definitely I mean increased police force is not how we should go about doing anything for for these issues. Mass incarceration is exactly what has happened based on what you said. Basically like let's just lock up more people and um let's Let's not think about, rather rather than locking up people, let's think about how can we put more resources into these populations? How can we change the redlining that happened and the segregation that happened where these communities became disenfranchised because no money was going into them, no resources were going into them. The school system started to fall apart in those neighborhoods. The police system was falling apart. That There's no healthcare clinics. Um, so I think definitely not policing or incarceration. I mean, we went from slavery 
to the 13th Amendment to then mass incarceration because we know right now that Black men, although they make up 13% of our U.S. population, they are make up 40% of the prison population. And if you are a Black man who was born in 2001, you have a one in three chance, one out of three will be imprisoned in their lifetime versus for a white man, that's um, the number is much higher. It's one out of 17. Um, and we've had in the last 40 years a 500% increase in incarceration. So that's, again, this I, the reason I know so much about this and we have our medical students watch the documentary 13th is because this absolutely affects the health of our communities when you're incarcerating such a large percentage of a certain, a specific population. Yeah, I think I think it might strike some people as surprising that med school students are, are watching a documentary about the criminal justice system. But is that an innovation that is new in the last couple of years? Or when you talk about mass incarceration, it, does that get pushed back as something that doesn't belong in a medical school? Yeah, you know, in, initially, so we started showing the documentary about four years ago. Um, and, and there was a little bit of pushback. I mean, not, I think not as much to, to talk about mass incarceration, but, you know, you know, the documentary is pretty heavy and it has a lot and some people think it might be politically biased. But um, the bottom line is a lot of medical schools have been trying to introduce a racial equity framework into their curriculum. And um, it's it's tough because medical students have so much to learn in such a short period of time, right? And most medical schools focus so much on the biological, right? The the physiology, the pathology, um, the biochemistry initially. And so you're right. The, the, the topics that we're talking about right now have not gotten the attention they deserved. Um, but I think that is changing and it's changing, honestly, in the last few weeks. The discussions that we've been able to have at our medical school around this are feel so different than they did years ago, a few years back even. And I have to say, it's interesting that um, our administration has been supportive. We get pushback from a handful of students each year. And um, there's there's a few students who will always comment and be like, "I this was a waste of my time. I don't see how this is related to me becoming a doctor. I sh- we should have just had a week on clini- more clinical skills." What do you What do you say when someone comes to you like that? Well, most of it is anonymously in the in the feedback oh, about the course, but but no, we we want we want that feedback. We want focus groups, and we each year just try to we try to make those ties even more. I think some students just refuse to see it. To be honest with you. I mean, the, when you're talking about health, I mean, the, the title of the course I teach is called Patients, Populations, and Policy. I mean, we're not there to just teach you clinical skills. They have so much of that in medical school. We're there to talk about these issues that are not brought up anywhere else in their curriculum, which now, hopefully moving forward, will be brought up more longitudinally throughout the curriculum. We talk about implicit bias and racism and mass incarceration. But I will say, in the past, I've had a few students say things. We there was a reading on on white privilege or the privilege of the white coat, and in there it talked about white privilege. And there was a white student who said, "I, I felt really attacked by that article," or there was a handful of, of white students who said, "I felt." I felt very uncomfortable the whole week and I felt targeted because it seemed like you guys were just trying to make white people look bad. And I I could never say this before, but now I've been actually, as I've been talking to students and in groups in front of the deans, I've said this. I mean, my internal response to those those students was that's white privilege right there, that you are offended by a paper or facts that we're presenting in a course versus your black peers 
who live this, live with this every single day in every part of their life. They're dealing with these microaggressions and this trauma, and they're they're living with that at school when they walk home, like in all parts of their life. And I just the point is we we definitely need more of this because I I hope I've made the tie between health outcomes and health disparities and not really being able to make changes unless we address systematic racism and and that that goes beyond just healthcare like healthcare is one small part of that or access to healthcare it goes beyond that it goes into um, you know police brutality and mass incarceration and and access to housing and employment and all of those things and before I joined faculty at Georgetown I was at a, a federally qualified health center in northeast DC in ward 7 um I mean I had so many patients that like you know I talk with them and we talk about like f- especially for my patients who are black males like the minute they were born they already had so many check marks against them in our society and I watched so many of them struggle and it's related because some of them got put in jail for a minor nonviolent offense right and then when they were coming out they were trying to get jobs again and they couldn't right because they were in jail because of their incarceration record and then because they couldn't get a job they couldn't provide for their family and it was just like this and then they couldn't get health insurance and it's just like the and the stress i mean the one thing we don't talk about enough is the stress of not knowing if where you're going to live or if you you know paycheck to paycheck month to month those things all contribute to chronic illnesses such as diabetes and hypertension. With their finding, those links are really clear now. That's why you see um, the Native American communities and the Black communities also with these increased rates. So it, it really is tied together more strongly than most physicians realize, unfortunately. Yeah. What strikes me in this conversation is, so we've been hearing a lot about what it, what it would take to to reform or change the law enforcement in this country. And, and it always, it goes back to, you know, putting resources in communities, um, you know, for education and for health and, um, you know, and housing. And it seems like they're the exact same downstream causes that we are talking about in the healthcare system and that they're all connected, which (laughs) <laughs> is in some ways overwhelming, but like, it seems like it's also, we know what we have to do. Absolutely. No, you're so right. We know what we have to do that we we see this underlying cause, but unfortunately, because of politics, because of, and I'm going to say it again, because of we're in a culture of white supremacy, because I don't think that our um, our leaders want to address this issue and in, in care. Honestly, I don't think they care about our vulnerable populations. So, the right steps aren't being taken in all of these fields to do really what would be best for everybody's health. Um, and, you know, one of the things I didn't talk about, but which is huge, at least in terms of reforming like healthcare, besides that's a whole nother discussion, but besides, obviously I'm an advocate for healthcare for all, Medicare for all. Um, our healthcare system is so complicated and, and so broken in so many ways. And um, if you don't have money or if you're a, a person of color, it's you just, the healthcare system does not work in your favor. Um, but one thing that we need more of is we really need to address the shortage of underrepresented medical professionals. I was actually going to ask you about that. Like, what is the, what are some of the, I, I mean, there are the obvious sort of interconnected contributing factors that are working against people of color entering the healthcare profession, but what are maybe some specific to either medical schools or hospitals that are, um, sort of keeping this gap between um, 
the people who come in to seek treatment and the people that look like them actually treating them. Yeah. So I even, I mean, I'm using our med school, but this is like any medical school. And again, you know, our, our medical school is trying to do better. But the bottom line is we just don't have enough, I, I'm going to say people of color, but especially black faculty or physicians in our campus, right? So you have students who come through the med school. And I think for a lot of black students, they they look up and most other lectures lecturers are white males. I mean, that that that's most medical schools. And so that's like one part of it, like not seeing yourself in terms of like the medical students. But then there's another, obviously, for the patients who don't see providers who look like them or understand where they're coming from. Our department of family medicine, our chair is doing amazing work to um, to expose high school students to the medical field. And every summer, there's this program where um, Arches program, they bring all these high school students from different neighborhoods in DC to come and do research with us and come and um, see patients with us. And for these students, this is our first time being involved in the healthcare field and saying, wow, I could see myself as a doctor. And I think the, those things are huge. So getting more funding and resources to support recruitment, not once people are applying to medical school, but much, much earlier. So there, so in those communities, they don't have enough role models to even like look up and say, oh, I could be a doctor when I get older, right? Um, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is also supporting historically black schools of medicine or Hispanic serving schools of medicine. I mean, many years ago, five out of the seven, it, this was with the Flexner report, um, which is, you know, just part of the history that we, we want to teach our students more now is in 1910, but five of the seven historically black medical schools had shut down. And the only ones that stayed open were Howard here in DC and Meharry. That was shocking to me. I did not know that until you had sent along the PowerPoint you emailed us. The slide. Yeah. I, you know, it, as I've done the research, I've learned so much too. And, and I've, um, I, I was, I was surprised by that myself. And then basically what you had is you had African-Americans who were excluded from medical institutions and then they were relying on white providers. And at that time, if you go back through the history, you see the preconceived notions white providers had about black people, like I, I said earlier, about them being genetically different um, or unintelligent or you know, higher pain tolerance. And you can just see how that like almost perpetuates itself. So I think recruiting um, and supporting more faculty of color, um, reaching out to students at younger ages, um, reducing the debt burden, um, all of these things will make a big difference. Um, you know, and I, and I say this as somebody, you know, I worked in Northeast DC, but I felt like, and I, and when I went to med school, I wanted to work with vulnerable populations. And, and I grew up in a small town in Florida where it was very segregated and KKK had meetings when I was growing up. We re I remember, you know, seeing them, hearing about them. There were race rights at my school and it was, I, I saw anti-black racism from a very early age. And even though I was a minority, I had a privilege because I looked more white than black, at least in that community. And um, I had a privilege of my father was the only orthopedic surgeon in town. So I, when I wanted to become a physician, I was really passionate about these topics and working in communities to close the disparity gap. But I say that even myself, um, working in Northeast DC Ward 7, I don't... I. I love my patients. My patients love me, and I um, and I, I, I'm sure I did them a, a service. But at the same time, I think it it would have been so much more meaningful for them to have somebody who looks like them, and also somebody who understands their community. I mean, I drive back out to Arlington, Virginia, and then drive to Northeast DC. You know, somebody who lives in the community. I, those kinds of things make a huge difference. 
And and we need more of that because those providers are going to be able to understand and reach the patients in a, in an even deeper way. Yeah. It's an important message to end on. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. This is really informative. Um, we have a final question for you that uh, maybe your uh, husband, Wajahat Ali, who came on the show back in 2018, has warned you about. Uh, Wajahat is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. Um, so if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. So my faith drives so much of obviously what I believe and drives the work that I do and what I'm passionate about and, um, and the prophet Muhammad. So, so my faith is Islam and, you know, our, the, the prophet Muhammad can, for me was, was a leader in so many ways and revolutionized so many things and had such a commitment to the vulnerable that drives so much of what I do. Um, and so that would be my answer in terms of both as a, a leader, as a family, as a family member, and as somebody who sacrificed so much um, to do good and spread good. I That is beautiful. And again, thank you so much. I'm like, this is one of these interviews I, I, I'm leaving just sort of like filled with gratitude for, for you um, and the work that you've done in both educating and treating people uh, who often get ignored um, all over. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you all so much. any housekeeping this week so we will just move straight into consolations and desolations the part of our show where we talk about where we found god in our lives this week and where it was harder to find god um i'll go first i have a desolation um i so what made me think about this is like this past weekend um my as i mentioned my mom and dad went back to mass for the first time and i wasn't able to because i was traveling and I realized in that moment that it's been over a month since I've even like streamed a Catholic mass. Like I had been kind of keeping up with that at the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown. And I just kind of let that slip and I didn't replace it with any other liturgical or prayer practice. Um, and I don't think the desolation is not that like I'm not going to not I'm not live streaming mass anymore. Um, you know, we're not required to do that. But I think it was more that this attitude I had of just during this period, kind of like hibernating, just like not seeing this as an opportunity to be changed or grow in my faith, but just kind of like a, a slog to get through. So just like put my head down and wait till everything reopens. Um, and when that's your attitude, you're it's very difficult to see God in anything because, you know, you're literally just like trying to... Uh, walk, you know, sleepwalk through it. Um, I feel like I've been that not just in my faith life, but just kind of like everything uh, that has been my approach as just seeing this as something to survive through and look forward to the end and not look for any creativity or challenges to um, find God in new ways 
during the quarantine. Um, so it's kind of just like, I don't know, a, a laziness or a lack of imagination about what this time period could be that I think is not of God. <laughs> well, I think this is not necessarily good news, but <clears throat> context is I don't think that even if people are starting to go back to mass, right? Like you still definitely are going to need to <laughs> try and adapt, right? None of this is over yet, even yeah. if, it, if it is changing. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah. But it is sort of like, it is sort of like getting to the end of Lent and being like, oh, right. I didn't do any of the things I thought I was going to do. Yeah. And the things that I said I was going to do are really things I should be doing all the time anyways. Right, right. <laughs> so I'll be working on that. What do you have this week, Zach? Mine is similar in the sense that trying to understand what new reality looks like. I have been, and I'm not quite sure if it's a consolation or a desolation, but I have really been struggling with trying to just be sort of present in the moment that I'm in, um, that we're in as, um, as a neighborhood or as a country in that, you know, spending a week in Ohio, things are starting to open up there. Um, even in Brooklyn, things are sunny. We're starting to move into our different phases of reopening. And like you, I'm sort of jumping ahead. I, I'm sort of trying to guard myself against the hope that like, oh, we're, we're this close to getting back to normal. Things will go back to quote unquote normal. Um, mm-hmm. And setting myself with that hope and then immediately feeling disappointed that I, because I know that that's not true. Um, and so I've not been able to, so I guess it's a desolation really like move past this, trying to constantly set expectations for myself and ask, what is, what is God asking me to do right now? Especially because we're in such a unique moment as, you know, just personally, like as journalists in at this moment in our country, like you and I, but also like mm-hmm. as a normal human being, like we, this is a unique time that something unique is being asked of all of us. And I am just anxious that I am not listening to what that is. So that is my desolation this week. Yeah. No, I I feel like we're in similar boats. It's just it is it's just so hard to to be present when the present is really difficult. Well, and, <laughs> and difficult and shifting all the time, and, you know. Yeah. Maybe uh, it'd be uh, <laughs> you could say, well, it's always changing and but I, yeah. I I think it's fair to say that this is changing more rapidly than normal. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's agree to, you know, hold each other accountable for being present and moving forward and not wasting the time we have. I agree. And that's why I will not be scheduling any meetings past next week ahead of time. Very good. Take us out of here, Ashley. All right. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whittacle. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bringing faith to you and your inbox, our daily newsletter, America Today, keeps you informed and inspired with breaking news, award-winning analysis, and spiritual reflections. Subscribe to our newsletter for free 
at americamag.org newsletters.